Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, and I'm your host, James Whitmore. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land this show is being broadcast from, the Rwandri people of the Kulin Nations, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Natural disasters, they're a common part of life in Australia, but as the climate warms and people do more damage to the environment, they're becoming more frequent and severe. In today's show, I'm talking to two experts about two different disasters that affected Australia's coasts and provide a warning for the future. But first, here's an announcement. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and the Naro people, and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. And as we just heard, the Black Summer bushfires burned 17 million hectares of eastern and southern Australia in 2019 and 2020, destroying habitat for wildlife and people's homes and livelihoods. But bushfires don't just affect the land, and as new research is showing, they also affect our seas. To find out more, I spoke to Ty Burrows from the University of New South Wales. All right, Ty, can you take us back to 2019, 2020, when the extraordinary bushfires were happening on the east coast of Australia. Um, We know that they caused enormous destruction to the land ecosystems, but sometimes the marine ecosystems don't get a lot of attention. What have you found? Yeah, sure. So I'm sure that most of people remember the 2019-2020 bushfire season that we had here in Australia. Um, The country is covered in smokes, right? A lot of people lost their houses. But in addition to all that destruction on land, there's also a lot of impact on the water that most of the times we don't realize or forget about. So whenever fire happens, it actually changes the concentration of organic matter in the soil. And then with the rainfall, all the organic matter as well as debris, sediment, nutrients, ash, and potential other pollutants they can be transported into waterways. And since many of the black summer fires, it was near a coastal areas, and in some cases, those fires, they actually stretch 
along the, along the whole catchment area. All those potential pollutants, they can be transported downstream, affecting estuaries and other marine areas as well. And so in your study, you did find that there was an increase in, in all this sediment and other stuff, ash and all that sort of thing, going into the estuaries. Can you tell us how you did the study? Because to find out what happened after the fires, you also needed to know what was in the water before the fires. So can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, for sure. That's actually one of the unique parts of the study. That's quite rare and hard to have before data for natural disasters, right? Because we just don't know what's going to happen. And we are actually collecting samples for a completely different project when the bushfires started. So we had this perfectly designed before the fires data set. So we have data from immediately before and after the fires. And as you mentioned, like we measure a bunch of different indicators and every single variable that I measured increased after the fires. So what are some of those things that you're measuring? So our main link with bushfires, it's something called pyogenic carbon. It's the carbon formed during fires. We measured a bunch of different metals to try to check for like those toxic impacts. We measure nutrients like phosphorus and nutrients, silt content, and some um, water quality measures as well. Mm. And so all of those things show that yes, you know the bushfires were having some sort of impact on on these estuaries. Do you have any idea what sort of impact that might have had on marine organisms? There were some reports about, you know, um, oyster farms being affected. I've also, I think I remember a study about um, phytoplankton blooms um, out in the open ocean after the fires. Do you have any sense of what the impact might have been on um, organisms in estuaries? Yeah, so we have a lack of scientific literature on impacts of bushfires on marine systems. But we do have a lot of information on freshwater ecosystems showing that increase of nutrients can, can cause algal blooms. So that's probably one of those studies that you saw. Um, we know that the bushfires, they cause an increase in the turbidity. So you just have so many more things in the water column. And that affects the future feeding animals like oysters and mussels. And there were quite a few reports after the Black Summer fires linking the fires with the mortality of freshwater fish and crustaceans. Mm. As you mentioned, um, these fires, I mean, we know that these fires were just so extraordinary. You mentioned the whole catchment area of, um, you know, some water systems were affected. Um, but can we expect, you know, similar impacts from, you know, fires that aren't as intense? That's when things get a bit complicated, right? Because what was quite particular for these fires is that it was very intense and it was quite close to the coastal areas. So in theory, yes, but depending on the intensity of the fire, the type of material that's being deposit in the water can be different because then you just have different forms of carbons depending on how much that tree burned for example 
And what's quite concerning is that the studies are actually showing us that fires like the ones that we had in 2019, 2020, they are supposed to happen more often. So if you think about how extreme that was, it's quite concerning to think about what if we, if we start having fires like that more and more often. Like, are those impacts going to start accumulating in the systems? Is the system going to be able to recover? Like, how resilient is it going to be? Mm. Yeah, I'm curious. What, do you have any ideas about what we can do about the impact of fires on waterways? I mean, apart from the big one of, you know, cutting down carbon emissions, so you know, hopefully preventing them getting too much worse, is there any other things that we can do on, on the edges, around estuaries, on the land, that kind of thing? Yeah, so one quite interesting thing that we found with this last paper was that when we were analysing the estuaries, we actually separate them in categories. So we had unburn, because we need to have a control, and then we had burn areas with a buffer zone, and those were the estuaries where the riparian vegetation, that's that vegetation next to the water, that was intact, and burn estuaries without a buffer zone where we didn't have that vegetation. And what we found is that that increased concentration only happened on the estuaries without a buffer zone. So the ones that had an intact riparian vegetation, they actually behaved like the control areas. So that might be good news in a way of like, if we preserve the repair of vegetation, we are going to mitigate bushfire impact on estuaries, or at least is a pretty good first step, right? What I'm doing right now is actually investigating whether there was a consequence of just like a short-term impact, because maybe after 6, 12 months, all the impact is going to come down to the estuaries anyways. So I don't know if the repairing zone is just gonna delay the impact or it's gonna co co uh, or it's gonna protect it fully, but we know the short term, so immediately after the fires, it did at least mitigate the impacts from the bushfires. So that would be a good thing. Something that I would that would actually be ideal would be that when bushfire management plans are made they do include coastal areas because that's not something that happens. So marine environments, estuarine areas, they are not included in bushfire management plans. So it would be good to see those two parts communicating and then have coastal management plans including bushfires and bushfire management plans including um, marine areas. You mentioned that um, this isn't a very well studied area do you know what, why is, why hasn't anyone paid much attention to what happens to bushfires and what happens to coasts during bushfires? I honestly don't think it was a threat that we had to deal with before, right? That's actually something that we argue in a paper that those mega fires, so that's how we call these fires that they're so extreme and burn bigger areas with high intensity. We just didn't have fires like that reaching our coast with such intensity. So if you think about all the destruction that comes with those big fires, and you have like people and then assets and wildlife and forests, until you get to the fresh water, it's already quite big of a stretch. But the coastal area, mainly because it's so dynamic, 
because asteroids you have like water coming from the downstream and the influx of tides so it quite flushes out quickly in comparison mm. to the lake for example so I honestly think it was just not something that we had to deal with before but unfortunately it looks like we will have to so in other words it's sort of a new thing that a new phenomena that we're starting to pay attention to as opposed to something yeah, that's happened all the time yeah it is a way of looking at it because like we do have like eutrophication is one of the big issues with asteroids that's when you have a lot of nutrients being deposited in the water and then we have that with industry ports farm farmland and then now we have bushfires contributing to that that was Ty Burrows from the University of New South Wales. After the break, we're going to hear about a mysterious disaster that happened to the mangroves of northern Australia. But first, here's Baker Boy with Maruyuna. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. I'm a proud black little boy with a killer flow. Listen to the year that here, listen to it blow. For the boys who avoid all the way from Manam Land, they're a boy in the Lapudai, in the Yuma Balandabu.
Words out. Freedom of species has hit the airwaves. Tune in for debates and updates on both local and international animal protection news and events. And learn about how you can live a cruelty-free, sustainable lifestyle. News, views and non-leather shoes. That's Freedom of Species, 1pm Sundays on 3CR. Authorised by the last few remaining kangaroos, Canberra. That was Baker Boy with Mariuna, and you're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Seven years ago, reports started coming in about mangroves dying in the Gulf of Carpentaria in northern Australia. When researchers went out there, they found a vast area of mangroves had died. In fact, the largest dieback of mangroves ever recorded. Ever since the disaster, scientists have tried to figure out what happened, and now new researchers show the answer might be truly extraterrestrial. I spoke to Neil Saintelin from Macquarie University to find out more. All right, Neil, can you take us back to 2015 when something quite shocking happened to the mangroves in northern Australia? Yeah, we first got sort of some reports filtering through from local people in March 2015 um, after a a particularly bad dry season um, that there was some mangrove dieback um, the evidence grew right through that year and into 2016 that something had happened. And at the end of the day, there was something like one of my colleagues, Norm Duke from James Cook University, estimated 40 million dead mangroves, which is highly unusual. It's probably just shy of 10% of all of the mangroves in the Gulf of Carpentaria that died. Um, intriguing thing, even now, very little um, regrowth in some of those areas that were particularly hard hit. So it's very unusual. Normal, normally mangroves are extremely resilient and if they do drop their leaves, they'll grow them back the next summer. You know, they might look dead, but they'll come back um, just as good as before. So this was something really unusual that occurred um, mm. over that, uh, that period, 2015, 2016. Yeah. Mm. I read it was something like a 1,000 kilometres of mangroves that have been killed, which is um, actually a bit over the straight line distance between Melbourne and Sydney, which is just extraordinary. Yeah, it was, was, well, death, mortality over that length of coastline, not all of those mangroves that have died, but, you know, something, some some areas really hard hit, other areas relatively unscathed, so it was a little bit uneven, um, but it made for a really intriguing research question. Hmm. So, yeah, so almost immediately the the talk started about what had what had caused this and um, sea level rise, drought, all of these things yeah. were raised. El Nino was part of the story, and then we've got your latest research. Can you tell us about what you found? Yeah, it's, mine's the craziest of all those theories. <laughs> a wobble in in the orbit of the moon was involved. Um, now there was a there was a paper that was published last. Uh, well, two months ago, by James Cook University scientists um, identifying the El Nino as the culprit. And there's nothing that we've done that kind of would contradict that necessarily. Um, Certainly there was an intense El Nino in 2015, 2016. uh, That caused a lowering of sea level. Uh, There was less rainfall. It's particularly dry in November, so the, the dry season extended into November. Uh, very stressful time for plants. 
But I felt there was something else going on because the El Nino affects the whole continent. In fact, it, it affects Asia, India. It's a, it's a sub-hemispheric scale phenomenon. Uh, but the mortality was concentrated in the Gulf of Carpentaria. There were stressed mangroves elsewhere, but very little evidence of mortality anywhere but the Gulf of Carpentaria. It just seemed that the Gulf got hit really hard. So I was intrigued to know why um, and when, when elsewhere the damage wasn't so severe. And that's what got us thinking about, you know, what else might be going on. We looked at, we looked at temperature because it was the same period of time. There was a mass coral bleaching event, 2015, 2016, associated with the same El Nino. But mangroves are very, very hardy when it comes to, to high temperatures. Um, and there had to be some, some other explanation. Around the same time, we got access to some really long-term mapping of mangrove extent and canopy cover that extended back 40 years uh, and was annual. So every single year in that 40-year period, we had mangrove extent and, and the density of cover, which is a really nice indicator of how productive and healthy they are, extending over the entire continent. It was really high resolution. So that was my... COVID lockdown project, <laughs> you know, squirreled away my study for several months, not, not being interrupted by students. And I got to dive into that data set and have a good look at it. The first thing I did was plot canopy cover over time and it formed this beautiful oscillation over an 18 year cycle, up and down over two phases of that cycle. And, uh, and it was a pattern we saw time and again when we looked at different parts of the coastline. And it's in, in anything in nature, when you see that oscillation, when you see something that's regular, you're thinking this is orbitally driven, right? Because nothing on Earth is kind of regular, but the planets are regular, you know? Um, so we started thinking about it, you know, what's going on in terms of orbital processes that's going to be driving something over such a regular time frame. At the same time, there was a study published by NASA scientists saying there's this thing called the lunar wobble that occurs over an 18 year time period, 18.6 years to be precise, that influences the magnitude of the tides. And they were saying, you know, the next time this peaks in the early 2030s, we're going to see a fair bit of coastal flooding because you're adding that to sea level rise. And so it was sort of like advanced warning. Mm. So then we plotted the 18.6 year nodal cycle, this lunar cycle, which is influencing the tides against the canopy covered dynamics and it matched perfectly, peak for mm. peak, trough for trough. So we knew we were onto something then and that was exciting because even though people had spoken, people known about this 18 year cycle for um, about 300 years um, and there's been papers looking at how it influences flooding, how it influences sediments, no one's ever published anything suggesting it influences biological organisms. And here we had continental scale patterns of mangrove canopy cover that were tracking that cycle perfectly. So that was a really exciting observation. Yeah, it's really extraordinary. And it sort of, it sort of nicely illustrates something that is a little bit tricky to, to get across in that sea level changes all the time. You know, it's seasonal, it's tidal and then you've got climate change happening sea level rise happening in the background and in different places all, all around the world so yeah it's, it's really fascinating but so this was I, I believe it was at least 
back then the world's largest dieback of mangroves that's ever been recorded. Yes. Um, have there been any bigger die-offs since, or and and do and is this sort of die-off not not as large as this, but die-offs of mangroves are they relatively common? Um, then they're, they're, they're not. Uh, I've seen I've seen. You know, insects go through stands, mangroves, complete defoliation, but then, they, as I said, they'll come back the next year. It'll be right as rain a year or two later. Um, oil spills, you know, the oil will coat the, the mangroves, pneumatophores, the breathing tubes. That will cause their uh, mortality. Uh, but that's pretty rare, you know, not, not over huge areas. This was massive, and there was two reasons, two things happening at the same time. There was the El Nino, which was dropping sea level, and there was this oscillation in the moon's orbit, which was dampening tide range. And so what we were, and, and, and the way that operates in the Gulf of Carpentaria was different to the rest of the coastline. Um, and the combination of those two things in the Gulf of Carpentaria and in the Gulf alone made conditions impossible for, you know, really, really challenging for mangroves. You had a drop of sea level, drop of tide range at the same time, both both those about 40 centimetres, so an 80 centimetre drop in the level of the high tides, which is massive, and a really unusual coincidence that those two factors were happening at the exact same time, and that's what tipped the mangroves over the edge in the Gulf of Carpentaria. You mentioned that they haven't... They don't seem to have recovered. Do you know why that is? It's it, yeah. Look, normally they're pretty quick to 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 grow. Very opportunistic plants, bridge a lot of seed, grow really quickly. What uh, we found this again. This is the work of Norman Duke at, at um, James Cook University. What what he's found is that there's so many branches, you know, fallen branches from this mangrove mortality on the floor of the forest. So if tide comes in, it moves all that stuff around like a raft, and it literally just cuts away any juvenile that's trying to trying to get started. Um, so it's very challenging for plants to, you know, grow enough to escape that sort of effect of the tide, those those debris rafts. Um, that's probably been the main thing that's inhibited. Over time, you know, they'll they'll that that organic material will disperse or decay away and you'll get you'll get the mangroves growing up again. We're not concerned about them in the long term. And we know actually that climate change and sea level rise is increasing the area of mangroves right across the continent. Um, we expect that to happen in the Gulf as well. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. So um, even though this was caused by a fall in sea level, do... And you mentioned that uh, climate change is actually increasing the extent of mangroves. So it, it, it's not necessarily a bad thing that for sea the um, for mangroves that's for sea level rise. Yeah, well, it, it, you know, all things in moderation, right? Mm. So, so under the kind of rates of sea level rise we're seeing at the moment, it's great for mangroves because they can survive it. Um, they actually build elevation at around the same rate as sea level rise up to a certain point, and at the moment they're doing that, but they're also able to move into new environments. So we're seeing you know, fairly substantial increases in mangrove area at the moment. We expect that will continue over the coming decades, um, particularly in places like the tropical north where there's, you know, not a lot of development, lots of opportunities for them to colonise new areas as sea level rises. My previous work, I published a paper two years ago where we looked at what happened to mangroves at the end of the last glacial period, and during that, after the glaciers melted, there were periods of very rapid sea level rise, 
um, you know, beyond what we're even projecting under high emission scenarios. And you can sort of see how mangrove, whether they're coping or not coping under different rates of silver ice across the planet. And consistently, if the rate of silver ice exceeds seven millimetres a year, you, you lose your mangroves. They just become really narrow, very, very limited in extent. As soon as it drops below seven millimetres a year, they start to expand in area. And, um, you know, that's true just about every continent we've looked at it. And so for that reason, we're thinking, you know, we've probably got a bit of an envelope now where mangroves are going to be okay because we're now at about three and a half to four millimetres a year of silver rise. But if we get to seven or beyond, that's a different story. We don't really expect the mangroves to do terribly well under those circumstances. We're only getting to seven millimetres a year by the end of the century under the high emission scenarios. So, um, you know, if we if we can can decarbonise, reduce our emissions, you know, according to the Paris Agreement, mangroves should be fine. In fact, there are probably going to be more mangroves at the at the end of the century than there are now if we can main if we can limit emissions within these the scope of these international agreements. If it gets away from us, then it's pretty much game over for mangroves, um, even by the end of the century. That was Neil Saintland from Macquarie University. Amazing how complex the oceans can be. That's all we've got time for this week. To listen to this show again or any of our previous episodes, head to www.3cr.org.au forward slash radio blue. We'll be with you again next week, and in the meantime, stay well. <laughs> <laughs>